did. The laundry, the dishes, filed the taxes, sent out my resume with the necessary attachments. I swept, scraped, mopped the floor, fixed the old hinge on that creaky cellar door. I sent a get well card to your ailing brother. I called and spoke with your ex-stepmother. She said to tell you she's doing just fine I told her you'd give her a call sometime I raked the leaves Cleaned out the gutters I painted the door frames And the window shutters I filled out applications For a half dozen jobs I groomed the cat And I walked the dog I bought a mower from our next door neighbor I cut the grass in our yard And then in his as a favor I cleaned the garage The attic, the basement I retard the driveway With a quality pavement I got the kids up, dressed them Made them breakfast I took one of the doctor One of the dentist I made their lunches And I got them to school I picked them up even Took them to the swimming pool I made a list Went grocery shopping Ran seven old miles Without even stopping Somewhere in there I pulled a muscle Did a whole Sunday New York Times Crossword puzzle I entertained visitors Gave them a tour I found that lost earring You've been looking for Took out the garbage and brought in the mail I sold some of your stuff at our neighbor's yard sale I hung all your portraits after getting them framed Organized your spice rack alphabetically by name I vacuumed and dusted every room and surface Gave every useless item in this house a purpose I figured out what was wrong with the garbage disposal I proofread and edited your meeting proposal I cooked your favorite meal, vegetarian lasagna I set the table and then I waited on you I went to the post office I went to the bank, I went to the gas station Filled up the tank And then I came back home and I cracked open this beer and that's the entire story of how I wound up here And look, I know it don't look like I've done too much And I haven't, don't get me wrong But I've been keeping busy Trying to keep from going crazy I've been keeping busy since you've been gone On the last episode of Someone Else's Blues, I told you about the bike trip that my roommate Bob and I embarked upon in the spring of 2013 from Northampton, Massachusetts to Appleton, Wisconsin. We traveled some 1,100 miles over the course of two and a half weeks. For me, the trip was partly an opportunity to bond with Bob, partly an opportunity to see the country, and partly a way to see if I could do it. But mostly, I saw the trip as an homage to my brother a thing undertaken in the shadow of my twin, who had attempted a cross-country bike trip two years earlier, 
which had been cut short when one of his companions, Bill Cranshaw, was struck by a car and killed. I also introduced you to some of our Warm Showers hosts and tried to confess to Bob how anxious I was every moment of our trip, because I could only really see our undertaking through my twin brother's eyes. If I were not me And you were not you And we did not both know what we've both been through my name is Will Steffen. Welcome to Someone Else's Blues, a podcast about twins, twinship, and the best singer-songwriter you've never heard of. Part 3 Am I my brother's keeper? One of the things Bob and I started doing on the first day of our trip was counting graveyards that we passed. Each time we passed one, one of us would turn to the other and shout out a number. On the day we arrived in Appleton, I wrote about stopping in a graveyard to put on sunscreen. This was graveyard number 52, I wrote. It turns out you can measure the distance from Northampton to Appleton in graveyards. It is a 57 graveyard trip. It is also a trip that takes one dead porcupine, two turtles in the road, alive, two foxes, alive, one dead skunk, one dead snake, two ghost bikes, and eight flat tires. In that graveyard, I watched a truck pull up on the other side. An old man got out and slowly made his way over to a stone head and stopped. I realize it is kind of a morbid game to count graveyards. Indeed, we have probably been downright inappropriate about it. It became our habit to shout out a number as soon as we passed one, and whoever spoke first was echoed by the other. At 36 or 37, several heads in the graveyard turned to see two obnoxious bikers shouting excitedly into a graveyard. 36, woo! But I think a game like this is a good way of reminding oneself of one's mortality, which is something I have not stopped contemplating since setting out more than two weeks ago. I honestly did not know if we would make it. Part of me still does not believe that we have. I met a tree on Highway 9 A long standing ponderosa pine He said he wished he had legs like mine So he could run I said I'd trade you these here boots set down roots he said man sometimes there's substitutes but this just ain't one and isn't that just my luck that right when i get going the going gets tough i lose my shoes the road gets rough on me again On our 11th day on the road, I finally got in touch with my brother Sam. Here is how I wrote about it. We stayed at Miller's most of yesterday afternoon. 
When she noticed we weren't leaving, the owner brought us some brownies on the house. We decided to order a pizza, too, since they were having a deal. Ten bucks for a three-topping large pizza. It tasted microwavable, like something you might eat at a bowling alley. But it was delicious. We left an enormous tip. I also finally got in touch with my brother while we were at Miller's. After telling him a bit about the last few days, I was surprised to hear him say that he was envious of what I was doing. He made me wish that he was with us. Do you think you'll ever do something like this again? I asked him, after what happened to Bill. His answer surprised me. To be honest, he said, part of me really wants to finish that trip. There is a lot about his trip I still don't know about. I have yet to read his account of it, though I see the hulking mass of his bike journal sitting on his desk in a hard copy every time I visit him, and I have even thumbed my way through it once or twice. He made me feel good about the time we were making. He said there were days of his trip where they only biked about 15 miles. I understand there were several days where they didn't bike at all. They kept getting distracted, hung up. But I think distraction is a good synonym for traveling by bicycle. It is a travel through digression and deferral. Arrival is merely the decision to stop wandering. Sam wished me a safe and careful trip before finally hanging up, which means a lot coming from him. Sometime around 1594, Shakespeare wrote a play called The Comedy of Errors. The play opens in a place called Ephesus, where a law has been established that says that Ephesians will, quote, admit no traffic to our adverse towns, unquote. Aegeon is from Syracuse. No, not Syracuse, New York. The other one, the original Syracuse. So he begins the play being sentenced to death. Duke Solanus justifies his ruling according to the law of the land. He says, If any Syracusan born come to the Bay of Ephesus, he dies. His goods confiscate to the duke's dispose unless a thousand marks be levied to quit the penalty and to ransom him. Thy substance, valued at the highest rate, cannot amount unto a hundred marks. Therefore, by law, thou art condemned to die. But before he sends Aegean away to be executed, the Duke of Ephesus wants to know why Aegean left his native Syracuse, knowing that he was risking his life. Aegean tells the Duke he was born in Syracuse. He got married there. But, he says, due to some unfortunate circumstances, my wife and I got hung up in Epidamnum, where she gave birth to our twin boys, the one so like the other as could not be distinguished but by names, he says. Even more strange, in the same inn, on the same evening that his twins were born, a meaner woman also gave birth to twins, which, get this, I bought and brought up to attend my sons. On our return voyage from Epidamnum, not three miles from shore, a squall rose up which scared the sailors on board so much that they jumped ship and left me and my wife and our two sets of twins to fend for ourselves. My wife tied one pair of twins, an incomplete set, or one twin from each set of twins, to the mast, while I held on to the other two boys. And just as we were about to be rescued, our ship hit a rock, causing me and my incomplete set of twins to be separated from my wife and her set of twins. I and my twins were rescued by a ship bound for Syracuse, while my wife and her incomplete set of twins were rescued by a ship bound for Corinth. 
To make a long story short, when my son turned 18, he started asking questions about his long-lost twin brother and wanted to set out with his twin, but not his twin, servant, attending him to find his brother. I also wanted to find my wife, so for the past five years we have been roaming around Asia looking for them. And Ephesus was our last stop, and here we are, and here is where my life must end. The Duke of Ephesus is so enchanted by this story that he lets Aegeon have until the end of the day to try to come up with a hundred barks to spare his life. If you've never seen or read The Comedy of Errors, you can rest assured that hilarity ensues. It's a play whose staging usually relies on twinship being recognizable to an audience, not because of actors who necessarily look alike, but because of identical costumes. The play is based on a play by the Roman playwright Plautus, called Menachmi, or the Brothers Menachmus. The original play is about a set of twins who have been separated at birth, running around confusing the people of Epidamnus because of how similar they look. Shakespeare thought it would be funny to have a second set of twins running around Ephesus, spreading all kinds of madness and confusion. A gimmick that works better, though perhaps less believably, if each twin has the same name as his brother, Antiphilus and Dromeo. I wasn't necessarily thinking about the comedy of errors or the brothers Menachmus as we rode through Syracuse, New York, but it is more than likely that I was thinking about Shakespeare. And more often than not, I was contemplating death in one form of another. On our seventh day, we rode through Albion, New York, and were greeted by a sign that said, Albion, a great place to live. But the sign was literally in a graveyard. Every day, I felt as if Bob and I had been granted some reprieve, not unlike the one Duke Solanus grants to Aegeon in Shakespeare's play, where we had until sundown to come up with not a hundred marks, but a hundred miles, or it would mean our death. Each day, I remember thinking that we really only had until sundown if we were going to get to see tomorrow. And each time we spoke with a host about some amazing bike trip that they had been on where nothing had gone wrong, where the worst thing that had happened had been an inopportune flat tire. I remember feeling like there was something I wanted to tell them. I remember feeling a bit like Antiphilus of Syracuse when he first mistakes his brother's servant, Dromeo of Ephesus, for his servant, Dromeo of Syracuse. Antiphilus of Syracuse is thrown into an existential crisis. He grows immediately suspicious of his surroundings and feels the need to keep moving, to get the hell out of Dodge. They say this town is full of cosinage, as nimble jugglers that deceive the eye, dark-working sorcerers that change the mind, soul-killing witches that deform the body, disguised cheaters, prating mountebanks, and many such-like liberties of sin. If it proves so, I will be gone the sooner. I heard my fair share of stories that didn't end the way my brothers had. Even when Jeff got Subaru'd, his helmet had broken in all the right places and saved his life. Now, almost seven years later, Bob even has a few more stories under his belt, now that he has done a few more tours. Dude, I don't know if I ever told you this story. When I was on the other bike trip uh, with Brian and Dave, uh, it's like, talk about accommodating people. I called this guy to stay with him for warm showers. He called me back and said, I missed your original call because my fiancé just broke up with me. And so I don't know if I can host it tonight. I'm just feeling really emotionally distraught. 
Wow, that's a, that's a lot of information to share with a potential host <laughs> or a potential guest. Yeah, I was like, okay, man. But you're so accommodating, you're willing to almost host me despite this. <laughs> yeah, wow. <laughs> Wait, where was that on your other bike? Was that in California or somewhere on the East Coast? Uh, and that was on the East Coast somewhere. I just remember wow. thinking, why did you call me back? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a lot. I don't remember telling anyone that we met on our trip about Bill. Maybe it's because I didn't want to sour the mood. Maybe it's because I just didn't want to talk about it. Or maybe it's because it's the only thing I wanted to talk about, but I didn't think I would want to be heard, or I didn't know if I would be believed. Christ, he was sent here to save us with a message and a couple of tricks. Wherever he went, he encountered a creature that must have struck him as too broken to fix. He once asked to please be relieved of his mission. He said, nobody here understands. Everyone thinks I'm chosen and special. I keep telling them I'm only a man. He died on a Friday, laid dead on a Saturday, and early Sunday morning he rose. When they rolled away the stone from his coffin, all they found were the scraps of his clothes. Two fellas out walking on their way to Emmaus encountered him and said there were more to retrieve. He said, look man, even if you manage to get their attention, you'll have to die to make them believe. successful when your angel pulls you in to wrestle and you won't have to sink the vessel just to make still water flow but given the option between staying and leaving giving receiving nothing and grieving i'll take whichever staunches the bleeding i'm only human you know fellows out walking on their way to Emmaus encountered him and said there were more to retrieve. He said, look man, even if you manage to get their attention, you'll have to die just to make them believe. I'm not comparing myself to Jesus here. Relax. I wasn't born in Bethlehem. I just grew up there. But I do think this song, Only Human, is another song of my brother's which, much like a brief reflection upon my life to date, which I discussed in the last episode, bears a message about wanting to refuse what the speaker has been burdened with. If I am nothing but a coward now, it is only because once I was much too brave. I keep telling them I'm only a man. Maybe I didn't tell people about Bill because I didn't feel like I could. Maybe I didn't feel like it was my story to tell. On our fourth day, not long after leaving Ilion, New York, we met with our first disgruntled driver of the trip in Utica, who, while passing us, announced out the window that we should use the sidewalk. 
This wasn't as bad as the car full of white 20-something dudes who called us faggots outside of Ashtabula, Ohio, as they passed us on the road with barely any shoulder, without yielding or slowing down. But it was still alarming. In Utica, Bob remarked farther down the road, It's not the energy that bothers me. I think that's great. It's the ignorance. When that woman goes biking, she probably uses the sidewalk and doesn't even know that that's the wrong thing to do. People like that woman make this trip a terrifying experience, I wrote later that evening. I realized today that my will alone will not let me survive this trip. Rather, it is the will of others that I am forced to depend on. Motorists. I must put my faith not in God, nor even in myself, but in motorists. I am well aware that this is a futile exercise, since they have already let me down, and since it only takes one sleepy trucker or one medicated zombie, with or without a driver's license, to ruin a biker's life and the lives surrounding it. That is a faith I am struggling with on this trip, even if I am finding, for the most part, that people who are not in cars and who are not extensions of their vehicles can actually be quite friendly and amazing. So why do it? On day 10, we were outside Elyria, Ohio, when I saw a bird get hit by a car. It seemed to be not much more than a push, a gentle nudge by an SUV passing us as two birds, robins perhaps, dove in front of it. The first bird made it. His companion was not so lucky. It was knocked to the side of the road. It rolled a few times in the dirt, flapped its wings once, and was still. We rode on, and the world kept turning. At the time, I couldn't help wondering if that bird might have made it if that SUV had not had to move over into the opposing lane in order to make room for me. Preachers and teachers, they taunt and test me. The neighbors complain and the cops arrest me. And every person I've ever loved has left me. What's that supposed to say about me? I was disinvited to my colleague's wedding It seems I couldn't prevent an ugly rumor from spreading I received a memorandum with the following heading It said, you and me, pistols at dawn I showed up late, but I brought my seconds We shook hands quickly, chose our weapons We threw up a coin and it just went on flipping Until all our hard feelings was gone Seems like I can't follow anything through I wake up from a nightmare and it just comes true Meanwhile everything beautiful reminds me of you Like a star I keep wishing on On our seventh day, the day we ended up at Cliffs in Buffalo We paused outside of Medina, New York Bob commented on the fact that our pace seemed ridiculous. Except what he said was, Dude, I'm loving this pace. This is the extent of Bob's complaining. He's a wonderful travel companion for exactly this reason. He also said, I'm not sure what your agenda is, but I'm not trying to kill myself or anything here. That night, I thought about that. And in that moment, it seemed like I did have an agenda after all. 
I am trying to get to Anna as quick as I can, I wrote. I do not envy those bikers who are taking their time to get to Washington. I have been reluctant to dismount from my bicycle, no matter how stunning the view or how significant the detour. I have even learned how to pee while balancing my bike between my legs without missing the ground. Perhaps Bob is missing out on an adventure or two by having me as his traveling companion instead of someone else. I have begun to miss Anna something awful, and somehow this is driving me now. But if one answer was simply to get it over and done with so I could get on with my life, get back to the woman I loved, another answer to the question, why do it, might simply have been, why not? On our tenth day, we woke up in soft, comfortable beds belonging to Bob's Aunt Carol and Uncle John. In the morning, Bob's Uncle John, who is definitely in the top five most interesting people I met on the trip, told us one last time to take the bus instead, before wishing us well and departing for work. Rather than saying goodbye when he left, he shook each of our hands and said, You're crazy. He also asked Bob what he was doing this for. Why are you doing this? I was curious to know Bob's answer as well. Bob told him we were already halfway done, so the reason didn't matter anymore. A few days before, he had confessed to me that bragging rights had something to do with it, and so did rebellion. Or maybe it was freedom. I don't know what I would have said had he asked me, but I think the fact that I had been wanting to do this for a long time might have colored my answer. It seems as though there are as many things to leave behind as there are yet to be seen or yet to be arrived at. But, I would later write, I also think I am doing it so Bob doesn't have to do it alone. In 1601, Shakespeare wrote another play about a set of twins, fraternal this time. Twelfth Night is set in Illyria, not Elyria, Ohio, which we rode through on day 10 of our trip. Illyria. Much like in the Comedy of Errors, the twins Viola and Sebastian in Twelfth Night are separated by a shipwreck at sea in the beginning, only to be reunited in the end. And while Twelfth Night only stage manages the confusion caused by a single set of twins this time, things still get confusing when Viola decides to wear the clothes of a man and thus appears indistinguishable from her brother Sebastian, who believes she has drowned in the shipwreck. But there is also something different about the twins being reunited in this second play, something missing. The comedy of errors ends with the nuclear family that has been separated for the better part of 18 years being reunited. Aegean finds his Amelia, and the brothers Antiphili are finally on stage at the same time. And so are the brothers Dromeo. The play actually ends with the Dromeo twins debating which of them should exit first. Eventually, Dromeo of Ephesus decides, We came into the world like brother and brother, and now let's go hand in hand, not one before the other. But Twelfth Night ends with a reunion in a different tenor. The twins, Sebastian and Viola, can only confirm the identity of the other by remembering that their family can never actually be reunited because their father, who is also named Sebastian, by the way, died that day when Viola, from her birth, had numbered 13 years. Sebastian confirms this. Oh, that record is lively in my soul. He finished indeed his mortal act, that day that made my sister 13 years. 
Triskaidekaphobia aside, the reunion between Viola and Sebastian is marked by their shared loss of their father. Furthermore, rather than ending the play like the brothers Dromeo, skipping happily off stage hand in hand, Viola and Sebastian each run off to marry their respective partners. Sebastian has actually already married Olivia, without letting his twin sister know, by the way. When Olivia mistakes Sebastian for Cesario, Viola's male alter ego, and hurries him into a chapel, Sebastian just goes with it. And Duke Orsino is willing to wed Viola, but only if she changes her clothes first. The focus of the comic resolution is on the marriages, not on the reunion of the twins. And if you look at it from the perspective of Malvolio or even Antonio, the end of the play isn't very funny at all. Thus, the reunion of these twins only produces a further and more permanent separation. It is a reunion tinted with the reminder of the impossibility of a real family reunion, full of the promise of further fracture. So why revive the twin plot? And why downplay the reunion of the twins in the second twin play? Well, one answer might be that Shakespeare had a different take on twins in 1601 than he did the first time around. Shakespeare himself was the father of twins. Before Shakespeare moved from Stratford to London, before he became an actor and a playwright, he became a father. His daughter Susanna was born in 1583, mere six months after he married Anne Hathaway. You do the math. Two years later, in 1585, his twins were born, Judith and Hamnet. But in the time between Shakespeare writing The Comedy of Errors in 1594 and Twelfth Night in 1601, the summer of 1596 to be precise, when the twins were each 11, Hamnet died unexpectedly. His cause of death is unknown to historians and scholars, but Shakespeare lost his only son, and Judith, her twin brother. Well, the water tastes like metal, and the coffee tastes like paint. Everything I eat these days makes me want to faint. I went to see my doctor, and I told him my complaint. He said, it ain't your tongue that's broken, it's your brain. Gives me cause to wonder, or should I say to doubt, if it's even blood I got flowing in my veins. Everything was going one way, now it goes a different route. But since you left, ain't nothing been the same. I remember my reunion with Sam at the sudden end of his trip being a bit more like the reunion and further separation of Sebastian and Viola in Twelfth Night. Our play's one comic scene, where Bill's mom mistook me for Sam on the morning of her son's memorial service, had been played out and now the only way for us to recognize one another was to confirm that we would always remember how old we were on the day that Bill died. But then again, maybe my decision to take a bike trip of my own, a decision I thought would surely drive a wedge further between me and my brother, actually helped to bring us back together, if only for a little while. I had traveled fewer miles than he, seen less of America than he had seen, produced a fragment of the documentation that he had generated on his trip. But I also feel like I had a sense of what it was like to be out there on the road now, 
I knew what it was like to be a shipwrecked twin at sea, to be adrift after a storm has cleft your bark in twain. On the last episode, I introduced you to a song of my brother's called Someone Else's Blues, a song about being a twin, a song whose title I stole for this podcast. On one level, it's a song about how you don't really need to explain your suffering to your twin. If I were not me, and you were not you, and we did not both know what we've both been through, I guess then I wouldn't be here trying to choose, now between mine and someone else's blues. Sam wrote this song before he went on his bike trip, when we were still corresponding with one another through letters and longhand, on a regular basis. And it occurs to me that, like Shakespeare, my brother also returned to the theme of twins, or at the very least, brothers, in the wake of losing someone. There's a song he wrote called The Boy Who Cried Wolf that tells the story of, well, the boy who cried wolf. It's a song that literally begins with the line, once upon a time in a faraway place, there lived two young boys with their father. In a faraway place, there lived two young boys with their father. One was in charge charge of everything else was his brother. The shepherd was told to keep his eyes peeled, to look out for wolves with their cunning. Was told if he saw anything that looked strange, cry out in the On the one hand, this is a powerful folk song, written in the folk tradition. It takes a story that everybody knows and tells it in a way so that it becomes less of a fable whose moral is simply, don't lie, or else no one will believe you when you're telling the truth. Instead, it becomes a kind of reflection on the paradoxical nature of engaging in political action, of rallying behind political leaders who promise to bring change, and then who just let you down once they step into the driver's seat. Maybe it's a song about the ambiguity of radicalism under capitalism, or the futility of having a voice in a democracy fraught with corruption. Maybe it's a song about how we are the sheep, and that we are the problem because we keep listening to and electing liars. The sentiment is certainly real. Wolf, there's a wolf, won't somebody help? The boy says. Somebody please, I ain't lying. Get up from your beds, you've been sleeping too long. Can't anyone hear me crying? And then everyone wakes up, only to find the boy dying of laughter. But on the other hand, it's a song about two brothers. One boy was in charge of keeping the sheep, 
in charge of everything else was his brother. In Aesop's fable, the false alarm raised by the boy results in him eventually losing some of his sheep to the wolf. In later English versions of the tale, the wolf also ends up eating the boy. I had never actually heard a version of this story that involves the boy having a brother. Like Shakespeare, who took a play by Plautus and added a set of twins to make it more complicated, my brother took a fable about the mischievous boy and added a brother in order to turn it into something else. So it's hard for me to hear this song and not think that I'm supposed to be one of the brothers, either the responsible one who does what he's told and who is in charge of everything else, everything that is important, or else the shepherd, who likes to take jokes a little too far sometimes out of boredom and who can't handle being in charge of the easiest thing, watching the sheep without generating a problem. And I can't help but think I'm the latter. And this is all the more alarming to me because in my brother's song, the boy who cried wolf doesn't lose a sheep to the wolf or even his own life. No, here's what happens in Sam's version. The villagers arose again to prevent some disaster When they got to the boy With their pitchforks and blades Again there he was dying of laughter Fooled us again Well shame on us they said We really ought to have known better The boy had been more like his brother The very next night A wolf, it appeared The boy saw it But he raised no holler He managed to chase it away From his flock Into the house of his brother Wolf There's a wolf Oh, somebody
If it's been a while since you've read the Old Testament, Am I My Brother's Keeper is how Cain, also a shepherd, answers the Lord when God asks him where his brother is. This, too, is a lie. Cain knows exactly where his brother is, because Cain killed his brother Abel after God accepted Abel's sacrifice and rejected Cain's for whatever reason. So in my brother's song, the good brother is punished, dies, actually, because of the disappointing brother's jest. And the disappointing brother lives and just keeps lying, keeps deferring responsibility for what he has done. If you're noticing a lot of my brother's songs seem to be informed by the Bible, let me remind you that he earned a degree from Vanderbilt Divinity School in theological studies. I'd say he's putting his degree to good use. I should clarify, too, that I don't think of my brother as a Christian musician. I think he's a folk musician, working in the same tradition as Pete Seeger, whose Turn, Turn, Turn just put Chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes to music, or Bob Dylan, who proposed that Judas Iscariot might have God on his side. Hashtag Kazantzakis. I mean, what, was Jesus supposed to betray himself? In fact, my brother's album, Only Human, which has The Boy Who Cried Wolf as the fourth track, also has a two-part epic song about the story of Absalom that seems more or less taken directly from the King James Bible, and another one called The Gospel According to Judas Iscariot. I feel like The Boy Who Cried Wolf might be a cautionary tale about me, a revision of someone else's blues that imagines twins as irreconcilably different instead of impossibly similar so that one cannot help but harm the other, so that one cannot help but compare himself to the other, and act out in response to being asked, why can't you be more like your brother? I remember first hearing this song shortly after I got married without telling my brother, so I can't help but feel there is some bitterness in this song directed towards me. Or, maybe this song is another song about losing Bill, an expression of guilt, perhaps. Maybe Sam imagines himself as the irresponsible brother who asks, Am I my brother's keeper? Not to be defensive, but because he expects an answer from the Lord. Well, am I? Or not? At the same time, I can't help but think there is a certain amount of contempt in Cain's angsty question to the God who arbitrarily decided to accept Abel's offering, but not Cain's. Cain might as well give God the middle finger, or else pose a question of his own. Why favor him and not me? Why create a scenario where I have to go on living without my brother, my friend? How is this my doing, if all I wanted to have was a good time? And then again, maybe it's just a cautionary tale about making sure you keep watch over your sheep, as well as your brethren. And if that's the case, then I'm glad I didn't let Bob go on that trip by himself. And I'm glad Bob was with me. When I finished my trip with Bob, I hung out with him in Appleton for a few days. We powered through the Fast and the Furious franchise, ate Dairy Queen, and drank beer. I put my bike in a box and shipped it back to Massachusetts. Then Bob drove me to the airport, and I flew off to meet up with Anna in L.A. for the summer. I spent my first few days in L.A. typing up my bike journal, converting it into something legible that others could read. And then I sent it off to the people who were curious about how the trip had gone. 
I sent it to my parents, to my brothers, to Bob, of course. A few days later, my brother sent me an email that read, Dear Will, Thank you very much for sharing your journal with me. I've enjoyed reading it slowly over the past couple days. It sounds like you and Bob had a really great experience overall, and I'm glad to hear that you made it. Reading your thoughts about things, I was surprised by how many of your own thoughts and experiences resonated with me and mine, and reminded me of what it was like being on the road on a bike when I was. I'm hoping to send you a letter pretty soon here, but part of your journal mentioned that I still hadn't shared my own journal with you, which I guess I've just forgotten to do as time has gotten on. So I'm emailing you now to remedy that. I'm sorry for the delay. I haven't actually worked on this thing in quite some time, and really don't feel like it will ever be finished. But I'd say it's about 85% done, or 85% as done as it will be. At some point, I think I would like to write a kind of conclusion for the ending, but the more time goes on, the more I wonder of the possibility of a conclusion. Anyway, all of this is to say I'm attaching my journal from my bike trip from two years ago, all 491 pages of it, in the hopes that with your trip so freshly behind you, reading about mine may seem more real and present somehow. I would have printed it out for you and sent it to you as a book, It's laid out to work that way, and if you can find a way to afford it, I'd recommend printing it. But you've got to pay a nickel a page here, and I don't think I have that kind of money right now. I would love to hear your thoughts on any of it, but I'm glad to have heard your thoughts already about bicycling and experiencing the world and the country. It means a lot to me to be able to read some of your more intimate expressions, and I'm glad that you've got such great friends in your life. I'm also going to attach Bill's journal from the trip, which I just finished transcribing from his terribly sloppy handwriting. Hopefully, if my journal gives you a case of the howling phantods for just going into way too much detail of things, you can cross-compare it with Bill's experience of things, which offers a far, far more condensed account of the same trip. I hope reading his account of things does not feel to you like a transgression of some private boundary. I'm discovering more and more that the written words of the departed are more sacred to some people than to others, that some people feel that they ought not to be read at all, ever, while others feel like they are a good thing to keep around to remember somebody by. I don't know where I fall. I think there's respect, and then there's respect, and it may be a little unfair to be reading my dead friend's private journal without his explicit consent. But I also feel like Bill was a good writer, and a great companion to be with out on the road, and I feel like we discussed sharing our journals at some length when we returned. And he's gone now, and it's something that we have to remember him by. I'm hopeful that they may give as much weight to the experience as my own journal does. And I hope I am not overstepping a boundary in sharing these pages with you. Understand, his words are not really mine to share. Sorry again to have kept this from you for so long. I hope your summer is going well so far, and that you and Anna are living it up in LA. Also, do you have a mailing address out there yet? I've still got some chili powder I'd like to send you. Let me know. And then I awoke as from a terrible nightmare Groping the darkness entangled in your hair Murmuring echoes I recall reading somewhere That was about when I parted with truth As the voices of angels surround the cathedrals To stand with the peasants who begin the upheavals And teach it was goods that gave birth to the evils 
which we've been dealing our whole lives till now. Will you recall why it was that we came here and what we are doing inside this container? What were the words we were told that would ease us? Angel Joseph, Mary, Jesus, what would they think if they could only see us now? Don't worry, I'm not going to share Bill's journal with you. I agree with my brother that that document is not for me to share. Needless to say, I figured out a way to print out the 491-page Word document my brother sent to me, and I got started on reading it. And when I finished it, I had pretty much made up my mind that I was ready to have a baby, and that I didn't have a moment to lose getting on with living my life, even if it meant getting hurt, waylaid, sidetracked, or even killed in the process. So what happened on Sam's trip? next time on Someone Else's Blues. I guess then I wouldn't be here trying to choose now between mine and someone else's blues. Someone Else's Blues is a podcast written, produced, and edited by Will Steffen. Music, of course, by Sam Steffen. By the way, if you like the music you have been hearing on this podcast, you can hear more at samsteffen.bandcamp.com. That's S-A-M-S-T-E-F-F-E-N dot B-A-N-D-C-A-M-P dot com. samsteffen.bandcamp.com. But you should have seen your face that day It looked not a thing like mine Why is it always common sense That says it's alright to just be yourself sometimes Lightning never strikes the same place twice, they say But even if it did, they might not believe that anyway If I were not me, and you were not you, that I would not want not to not be not you. The hardest part about loving you is that it has never been that hard.